This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by David Mark. David is a senior editor at the Washington Examiner. Previously, he served as a senior editor at Politico for six years and at CNN Digital Politics, among other roles. He is an author of two books, one on negative campaigning and one on political language, which he co-authored with Chuck McCutcheon. David appears regularly as a political analyst on television, radio, and other forums. He has spoken on policy and politics in 20 countries, on lecture trips through the State Department and the European Union. David, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. So, uh, David, I'm delighted to be discussing with you your chosen passage, which is the reunion of Joseph and his brothers. Yes, this is Genesis 45, 5 through 45, 7. One of the most famous stories in the Bible, but one that, if you actually read the text, gives a lot of different lessons, different takeaways that, that you get on personal growth, forgiveness, reconciliation, all kinds of other important themes. I can't wait to hear how you unpack these verses. So please tell us what happens in these verses, and then we'll get into unpacking it to discover the lessons that can help uh, improve our lives. Well, this is sort of, uh, you might say, the second part of a cliffhanger episode in which Joseph is revealing himself to his long-lost brothers from years before in the land of Israel. And they finally realize that they've come across each other once and for all 20 or so years later. And Joseph says now to his brothers, now do not be distressed or reproach yourselves because you sold me hither. It was to save life that God sent me ahead of you. And then a couple of lines later, Joseph said, God has sent me ahead of you to ensure your survival on earth and to save your lives in an extraordinary deliverance. And what I take out of this is that you can grow from your previous mistakes. It's one of the things we learned. When we first saw Joseph, encountered him years back, he was kind of full of himself. He, he was preening over his coat. His brothers were very jealous. Now he's looking out for his brothers. It's also showing that you can find positive from the most negative situations, which is something that I think we all encounter in our daily lives. Something might happen. You might have have a physical accident. Business deal may not go how you want, whatever it might be. But you realize months, even years later, you know what? There was a reason why it happened. And that's really what I take out of these lines. That's right. There's a reason why it happened. As God will later say to Moses, you will know me by my back. So you don't know in the moment we'll know later how God was revealing himself. And this is really such an act of divine reframing because Joseph has every reason to despise his brothers. They throw him in the pit and leave him literally for dead. But that's not the way he interprets his own experience. He chooses his own interpretation and chooses to interpret it as the whole drama was just God's will playing out. And he's in the position he's in right now to basically save the world, including his brothers from famine, because of what they originally did. So that's what it was about. And therefore, don't be too hard on yourself for what you originally did, because it was all part of God's plan. Right. Whether you view it as everything happens for a reason, which is one way of looking at it, or thinking, you know what, this bad thing happened to me. What can I make positive out of this? Or what years later 
didn't plant that little seed that something else happened. Maybe because of this experience, I met this other person or it led to this experience or that that I would have never encountered before. So I think that's one of the, the years long lessons to take from this. I think your analysis, the young Joseph is exactly right. You know, he's a preening spoiled by his father boy who none of us would want to be friends with. Right. We've all encountered characters like that. Maybe some of us have even acted like that at times in our life. We can look back to previous times in our own life. We said, you know what? I had a little bit of Joseph in me. I wish I hadn't bragged about this or that. Or I should have been nicer to my brother and sister or my friends, certainly my parents, any number of people. And that's another lesson to take back from this. That you can always grow from these experiences. That's right. And it's Joseph, even as a very young, well, he's a genius. So he was a genius when he's old. He's a genius when he's young. He's a jerk when he's young, but he's a genius. One wonders if the incident of the near fratricide doesn't happen and Joseph had grew up in a fairly normal life, what would an adult Joseph have been like? He probably would have been a failure because he has no EQ. Right. He would have been kind of closeted off to the side, would not have been able to relate to people, probably would not have many, if any, friends probably would not have been able to get a wife or a girlfriend. He was a handsome guy and he was clever and charming. So he may have gotten a wife, but he would have gotten divorced. (laughs) Fair enough. The young Joseph was so self-absorbed and selfish. So he knew how to charm somebody. But as a young man, he didn't know how to be good to anybody but himself. So he would have been a miserable person, inflicting lots of misery to lots of others around him. Right, right. And as you say, he's such a smart guy that he sees around corners, even when he gets to Egypt and he's essentially put in charge of society there. The Pharaoh sees that in him. So he would have been able to carve out some kind of life for himself back in Israel, but in no way would have had been this kind of meaningful regard, certainly not involving his brother and, of course, his father, which is so important to the story. Right. And I think one of the fascinating things in this passage is in uh, Genesis 45.4, and I want to get your take on this as a political analyst. So as you said, Joseph has not seen his brothers in a very long time, announces in 45.3, I am Joseph, your brother, is my father still alive? One of the great plaintive cries of the Bible. And his brothers could not answer him, it says in the text. And of course, we know why they can't. They're totally stunned that this brother who they thought they had left for dead as a 17-year-old is now the viceroy of Egypt and the one who was going to literally save them from starvation. So they're stunned that this is Joseph, who's now speaking to them, presumably in Hebrew. But they don't come to him. They don't start a relationship until he says, I am Joseph, your brother. It's only after he identifies himself as their brother, which of course they knew because what other Joseph was there? He was the only Joseph. But it's when he says, I am your brother, that a relationship is able to form. Right. And of course, we know how much this means to Joseph as well, because he he had to turn his head away and essentially cry off to the side in one of the, the previous verses. So very meaningful for him too. But yes, this is that notion of reconciliation that no matter what has happened with family members in the past, friends, you've had a split, a breakup, some really bad tensions, you can always find a way to get back together. By saying I'm your brother, and and kind of one of the beautiful instances of this is the Catholic Church, of course, has had a tortured relationship with the Jewish people for much of its history. And that started to reverse, and it reversed sharply with Pope John XXIII. And he did it. There was apparently a meeting in Rome in either 62 or 63 where he's sitting on the papal throne and these Jewish representatives come to him and he steps off his throne and says, I am Joseph, your brother, quoting exactly this. And he knew exactly what he was doing because what he was saying is, I am your brother. And when you announce yourself as someone else's brother, all the barriers will drop and a previously impossible relationship will suddenly be able to not only get formed, but flourish. 
and you're treating them as an equal. You're accepting them on their own terms. In that case, the Catholic Church accepting the Jewish people as the Jewish people, not something to target, to convert, to do all kinds of bad things to, but to treat them, he just said, as a brother, an equal of sorts. And, and that was the genius of Pope John the Twenty Third. is he knew, well, he had this biblical reference at hand. I mean, and the Bible never ceases to amaze. It's always there for us. And he used it so perfectly. You know, he needed to start this relationship. He knew the perfect, and this is your clause in the Bible, the perfect clause in the Bible to use. And as you said, he said, we're brothers. We have the same parents. And as brothers, we're going in the same direction. We have the same, the same shared goals, maybe the same destiny. I'm not trying to convert you. I, we're brothers. Right. And that was at a time, the, the early mid-1960s, where there was, you might say, some reasons for suspicion. This was 20 or so years after the Holocaust, 2,000 years in the Vatican II, and not really coming into being. A lot of the Jewish figures in attendance might have been like Joseph's brothers and said, wait a second, is he, does he really mean it? What's going on here? Might have taken him a little while to really come around to that. You know, you're such a seasoned Washington, D.C. political analyst and journalist. Does anybody talk like this in D.C.? You know, when Republicans and Democrats go at each other, other people go at each other. If one of them said to the other, we may disagree on a lot, but I'm your brother. I mean, I just wonder how things would change. And would that actually lead to any policy differences or changes? You know, occasionally you'll hear something like that. Certainly going on 20 years now, after 9-11, you did see for a few weeks some real unity. Certainly, there was a, this terrible shooting a couple of years ago over Steve Scalise, Republican leader in Congress. He was shot in a practice for a congressional baseball game. You saw Democratic members going to his hospital bed. They played a charity game. He was made an honorary member. You do see things like that. But overall, it is pretty bitter. And we could use a whole lot more reconciliation, at least not questioning each other's intentions, even if you come to a starkly different idea on policy outcomes, not saying, you know, I think you're doing this for the wrong reason. And maybe even leading with the language of I'm your brother or I'm your sister. There actually is a saying like this in Congress that in the House of Representatives, you know, we all got here the same way, meaning we're all elected by our constituents, about 700,000 people per district, give or take. Meaning, you know, if you're the most liberal Democrat or conservative Republican, you are all sent there the same way. So nobody's equal. There's also a certain aspect there of kind of respecting your opponents, knowing what you're up against, knowing that if you've got to this level, they probably are pretty good too. Put it another way, if you're a sports fan, when NFL linemen go up against each other on Sundays, they want to tear each other down, but they also look at each other and say, you know, we both got this far. You better respect me because I got to respect my opponent because they could be as good as I am. Right. Well, actually, you know, one of the previous guests on The Rabbi's Husband was Benjamin Watson, who played in the NFL for a long time. He had a long and great career. And he said, and I didn't know this, but he said that after the game, players from both teams will gather at the center of the field to pray together. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. I mean, the TV cameras are long gone, not because they object to it, just because they're covering something else. The game's long over, probably 20, 30 minutes over. And both teams, they gather in, in prayer and out of gratitude to the God that they all love and worship. And they do it, obviously, in the spirit of brotherhood because they're men praying together. Yeah, that's really something. That's a sign of respect. And probably an hour or so before they were trying to tear each other to the ground, they're trying to win. It's serious stuff. It's their job to tear each other down. But then to be able to reconcile like that, that's really something. And I'd like to think during the era of COVID-19, we would have seen a little bit more of this. I think we've seen it in fits and starts, but I think it's a shame we've kind of been more divided in these kinds of situations when there, I think there was room for more reconciliation. Have you seen this divisiveness in your two decades of 
covering Washington? Have you, have you seen it accepting crises and tragedies which are uniting, but not uniting for very long? Have things gotten worse, better, or stayed the same? I'd say it's gotten worse, not because people have gotten worse, but I think the incentive structure has changed. With social media, you are essentially playing to your base on either side. It is a bit of a cliche, but in Congress, if you are a Republican, you usually only have to worry about a primary challenge from the right. For Democrats, a primary challenge from the left. And it's just become so team oriented where people do not move across the aisle. There's very little understanding. Social media puts immediate pressure on these people to make very harsh statements that they might not otherwise say. Is that right? So it's because of social media, they'll make statements that they wouldn't make in its absence? Right. Now, I've been walking the halls where they probably didn't know I was a journalist. But I've heard of, you know, talking about the football game over the weekend or their kids, Republicans and Democrats, and they're not there to yell at each other. A lot of them really do want to try and find a way to work together. But the incentive structure, I think, is so off that it's hard for them to really do it. There's no real political reward in doing so. Interesting. So there's a policy reward, but a policy reward does not necessarily convey a political reward. In fact, it may convey the opposite. Right. You're basically on one team or another. And this really gets into the weeds. But there are just very few districts in which, say, the president that voted for the president for one party and a member of Congress for the other party. It's almost completely sorted out. And even 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. There were probably 50 to 60 congressional districts where there was real crossover. You had at least somewhat conservative Democrats, somewhat liberal Republicans. That is almost gone now. Essentially, you are on one team or another. And I think that's a shame, but it's not always like that. And I don't think that's why a lot of these people get into public service. I think they actually do want to work with the other side when they possibly can. So personally, they have one goal, but We all work within structures and institutions and with incentives. And I mean, it's hard to fight any structural ring, which is why the Bible in so many instances is so insistent on creating a positive structure in so many instances. I mean, it's basically all throughout. Yeah, you you get elected to Congress, you're essentially put on one team or another. You're t- the first thing you do is you got to raise a lot of money. You've got to know how to vote on the floor. You never vote against your own side, even if you might personally disagree with that. And that's something that it's, it's very hard to overcome that if you want to have any kind of future, because your own, own party leaders will just throw you to the side. And as you say in the Bible, in the verse we're talking about in Genesis 45, 5, it's not that sense of reconciliation that we would like to see so many times. There's a very different incentive structure in the Bible, you might say. I mean, even if two political combatants, and they shouldn't be combatants, but let's say for whatever reason in that moment they are, two political combatants go at each other. What incentive structure is there to trigger a reconciliation like that of Genesis 45-5 or any other kind of reconciliation? Is there an incentive structure or is the incentive structure just keep the combat going? I think there actually is, and the vast majority of people do not want to see their elected leaders just argue all day like little kids. It's not for entertainment. There's all kinds of serious issues that they're wrestling with. Yes, you have the partisans on either side who see it as a zero-sum game. Well, you know what? Not only see it as a zero-sum game, they see it as a game. Yes. Probably the way out of this is to stop seeing it as a game where there's winners and losers, but as a mutual endeavor where people are working together to accomplish something greater than any individual. And one thing I've noticed about that actually is when elected officials are forced to answer questions, 
directly from citizens, from the people they represent, their constituents, they often soften up and they give very different kinds of answers than when they get questions from people like me and my colleagues who are used to asking about procedural tricks. Why are you raising this much money? Why are you doing this or that for the party? People want to know, why don't I have health care coverage? Why is this going on? Why, have, why don't we have a vaccine for COVID-19? These are good questions. Let's take any one of these questions. And how would the answer be different to you and to someone at a town hall? People like me and my colleagues would probably look more for what bill is going to be passed in Congress, how they're going to achieve it, what television show they're going to go on and describe it. Somebody who's a constituent who they represent, they just want to know how their kids are going to be able to be at health, how their parents are going to be okay, that health care is not going to be hurt, any number of problems are going to be fixed. Most people don't care about their elected officials as in personal ways that I think a lot of journalists and insiders do. They just want problems solved. And I think it's most effective for elected officials to actually have to face them directly. Well, I mean, in those instances, in those town halls, I mean, is the candidate or the office holder more likely, um, is his or her answer to that question going to be, well, your goal can't be achieved because my political opponents are so horrible? Or are they more constructive than that? In my experience, a lot more constructive than that. They would say, you know what? There is this guy on the other side of the aisle. We were talking about doing a bill together. We have some differences. Maybe he or she would do it this way. I would have these other facets to it. But I think there's a way to come together. You hear about them introducing bills together, which actually does happen on at least a semi-regular basis. In what Democrats and Republicans introduce bills. Often they don't go so far, but at least they're trying to do so. The problem is once they reach higher up in the leadership wrong, they have no incentive. They're people who've been in office for 30 years. They say, you know what, that's not going to help our team. Let's swat that down. We'll wait till after the election to do something about that. Okay. So let's say that the heads of both parties come to you tomorrow. And what's that called? The Commission on Presidential Debates. They come as well. And they say, all right, David, this debate last night, I don't know who won, but the American people lost. Okay. How do we structure it either for this cycle or this cycle's? It's baked for the next cycle so that the American people win. You design it. How should it be done differently? Well, the second debate in the cycle is actually a town hall in which individuals, regular citizens, can talk to the presidential candidates. I think that's one of the better innovations. Sometimes it might mean working with people a little bit to frame their question, not as a gotcha or anything like that, but just to be able to do it in a very pointed way, like a good lawyer, so that in limited time you can convey information. I'd like to find a way to stop the interruptions in the debates. And that's something that you really don't see in the halls of Congress very much. Usually they at least let each other talk, not like little kids where they're going back and forth trying to talk over each other. I don't quite know how you would do that. I would need to think through the details, but it seems like there's got to be some kind of penalty for just constantly interrupting the person you're debating. Well, that's a good point. I mean, if in the Senate, it's almost funny to think if a senator interrupting another senator giving a speech on the floor, there'd be no procedural way to do that, right? I mean, in Congress, there's still very much a sense of decorum. I wrote about this in my second book on political language in which senators still say, my good friend on the other side of the aisle, even if they really can't stand them. No, but it's probably, you know, language is important. And it's probably, is it important that they say my good friend, even if they don't really mean it, or is it unimportant? I think it's important because it keeps a certain level of decorum, just like in polite society. When you say, hey, how are you doing? You always really care exactly how the other person is doing when you see them in an elevator. Maybe not. You don't want all the details, but it's a nice way of keeping up relations and keeping civil society going. And in the Senate and the House, they'll still say my good friend? 
They do. That is very much part of it. In fact, you can almost be penalized if you go after somebody's motives. It's technically against the rules in both the floors of the House and the Senate. You can actually be banned from speaking there for the day. It happens every so often in which you impugn somebody's motives and you say you're doing this because you're taking a bribe from this source or that. You're doing it for you're having an affair with this person. I won't name any names. So basically every political advertisement or most political advertisements violate that rule. But of course, they're not on the floor of this House or the Senate. Right. And of course, political advertisements are not subject to the same rules as commercial advertisements in which you say, if we sell the most laundry detergent, you better make sure you have that backed up by lawyers tenfold. In politics, you can say whatever you want, and there's really no penalty other than the voters. So substantive decorum is really written into the rules on the House and the Senate, and it accounts for something. How much? Who knows? But it's there. Right. And I think that is one reason for at least some optimism in our political system, that is, it has not completely fallen away, that it is there and people still maintain it on both sides of the aisle. Also, something you learn in Congress, you might be in the majority today. You could be in the minority tomorrow. Several of the leaders have been on both sides of this in the House and the Senate going back. They start out in the minority and majority party. You might want to remember what it's like to be on the bottom rung of the pyramid rather than on the top. That's right. David, thank you for such an interesting conversation about so many subjects emanating from this awesome biblical verse. Now, the concluding question always goes from one book, the sacred book of the Bible, to another book, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, I just ran into um, a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, Everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, David, in your two decades of covering Washington, from Politico to CNN to campaigns and elections to the Washington Examiner, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? I think one thing, we were just referencing it a little bit ago, that you don't want to question people's motives, that you might come to a starkly different conclusion than they do on any number of public policy issues. But you've got to remember where they came from. It might have to do where they grew up, what their influences were, and to just be respectful of that. And it could, another way, walk in somebody else's shoes. And I would also say, I think that the majority of people who go into public service mean it for the right reasons. They are well-intentioned. Again, you might disagree with them. Sometimes they're reluctant, and this is something we learn in the Bible as well, like Moses being kind of a reluctant prophet. That's one other thing I would just add. Some of us, we learn later in life to be leaders, and you can't always peg people early on. Right. Very interesting. Well, uh, David, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about so many subjects, and I really look forward now to seeing your coverage uh, from here on through the rest of the election. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.